You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Stanton Library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin these proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands that we meet on and pay our respects to our elders, past and present, and the spirits who are no longer present. My name is Maggie Collins, and I'm from the Collection Services team. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming and introducing Mark Tedeschi to talk about his new book, Missing, Presumed Dead. As a barrister and Crown Prosecutor for more than 40 years, Mark Tedeschi QC has worked on some of Australia's most significant criminal cases. He was the Senior Crown Prosecutor in New South Wales for 20 years, during which he also served as President of the Australian Association of Crown Prosecutors. Mark has published many articles on law, history, genealogy and photography and is the author of the critically acclaimed non-fiction titles Eugenia, Kidnapped, Massacre at Mile Lake Creek, and Missing, Presumed Dead. Mark is donating the proceeds of this book to Australian charities that assist and support victims of crime, the families of deceased victims and the relatives of those who have gone missing. Please give a warm welcome to Mark Tedeschi. Thank you very much and welcome. This book is about the disappearance off the face of the earth without trace of two women and a man. Those two women were Dorothy Davis and Kerry Whelan. Dorothy Davis was a 74-year-old widow who lived in the southeastern suburbs in a nice house. She was a, a mother and grandmother. She was very active. She had a very busy life. She was a member of clubs. She was much loved by her family and friends. And one day in 1995, she left her home on foot to walk somewhere. She left the meat defrosting on the side of her sink. She left the doors and windows open because there was a carpenter who was doing some work on her veranda. She walked away from the house and was never seen again. Her body has never been found. Kerry Whelan was a 39-year-old woman who was married to... Bernie Whelan, who was the CEO of the Australian branch of a large multinational company that made forklift trucks. Kerry was a mother of three children. She and Bernie were very happily married. Uh, Bernie, be being the CEO of a large company in Australia, was very well paid and they lived a very affluent lifestyle. 
They lived on an expansive rural property at Currajong where they ran horses. Their three children were very happy, healthy, and the whole family was a very well-functioning family. Kerry had lots of friends, she was very active, um, and her and Bernie's relationship was a wonderful one. In May of 1997, she drove to Parramatta. She drove into the underground car park of the Park Royal Hotel, parked her car, and she was seen on the security video camera that was downstairs in that car park, disappearing up the ramp to the street, Phillip Street in Parramatta. She was never seen again. Her body, like that of Dorothy Davis, has never been found. Now, those two women didn't come from a section of society that numbers people who go missing without trace and whose bodies are never found. They were not associated with the drug trade. They were not hitchhikers. They were not suffering from mental illness. They were not desperately unhappy with their lives and wanting to go and locate somewhere else in the world and start new lives. How many people do you think went missing in New South Wales alone in the three years 1995, 1996 and 1997? Any guesses? How many would you think? How many people were reported missing in those three years? 80? Up, up a lot. How many? 5,000. 5,000? Keep going. 10,000? Keep going. 21,000. Now, of those, how many were still missing, their bodies not having been found, by 2003, which is a date that I'll explain to you a little bit later... So six years later, how many people were still missing their bodies not having been found? Have a guess. Of 21,000. Sorry? 5,000? No, much, 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 much less. 80? Less, less, less. 16. 16 were still missing. Bodies not being found. No trace of them. Six years later. How many of those were mature age women who were not hitchhikers, involved in the drug trade, mentally ill or suffering from, you know, extreme stress and wanting to relocate their lives? How many? What were their names? (laughs) (laughs) Kerry Whelan and Dorothy Davis. Now, those two women had only one thing in common, and that was... They both knew Bruce Burrell. Now, Bruce Burrell was married at the time to a woman called Dallas, and Dorothy Davis had known Dallas Burrell all of her life. And Dorothy Davis very much loved Dallas. She didn't think much of Dallas's husband, Bruce. But Bruce managed to convince Dorothy Davis to lend him $100,000 on the pretext of buying a new house for Dallas, who had had cancer and had been very seriously ill but had recovered after chemotherapy. 
And Dorothy Davis felt this emotional turmoil about lending this large sum of money to Bruce Burrell, whom she didn't like, but she did. And then about six or nine months later, she made the mistake of asking for her money back. And, of course, Bruce Burrell, he hadn't bought a house. He just spent it on his living expenses. He had managed to convince Dorothy that she shouldn't tell anybody about this, this loan and the reason for it. And, but Dorothy was made of very stern stuff and she was determined to get her money back. So she threatened him with legal action and threatened to tell his wife, Dallas, about the loan. And on the day that Dorothy Davis disappeared, thank goodness the carpenter was working on her property because as she left on foot from her home, she said to the carpenter, I'm heading over there, and she pointed in, the, in a particular direction, to visit a friend of mine. She's had cancer. She lost all her hair. She's got it back because she's recovered. And she pointed in the direction around the block where the Burrell home was because they lived in the same block but on the opposite sides of the block. In fact, from the top of Dorothy's home, you could see the Burrell's home. Now, that was critical evidence. So when Dorothy Davis disappeared off the face of the earth, it was a day or so before her children realised that she was missing. They made extensive inquiries, reported it to the police, and Dorothy had, in fact, told her daughter about this loan. So the police were informed about this loan to Bruce Burrell. The police went and interviewed Bruce Burrell, and he said, oh, I was at work on that that day. So the police investigating it went to his workplace and they scratched their heads and said, well, yeah, yeah, we think he was working that day. And that was the end of the investigation of Bruce Burrell for the disappearance of Kerry Wheeler. Had that been the only murder that he committed, he would have got away with it. Two years later, in early um, 1997... Bruce Burrell was in dire financial straits. By then, he'd separated and divorced from Dallas. He, had a, he was living on a property called Hillydale at Bungonia, which is near in the country near Goulburn. And it was a very remote property with bush all around it, national park next to it, and the whole of the landscape in that area was dotted with mine shafts and ventilation shafts from shale mining in decades past. Now, Bruce Burrell was in such dire financial straits that he, he owed a, a small loan to the bank on, on the security of this property. He didn't even have the money to pay the next month's interest, and he was desperate. And what he decided to do was he decided to kidnap the wife of his former friend and boss, Bernie Whelan. Because years earlier, Bruce Burrell had been a friend of Bernie Whelan. They had a lot of agricultural interests in common. And Bernie Whelan had employed him as an advertising executive at Crown Equipment. He'd been let go during a recession and also because he was a hopeless employee. He would argue with everyone. He was lazy. He was ineffective. He was a shocking employee. So what... 
Bruce Burrell decided to do was he knew that Bernie Whelan was wealthy. He decided to kidnap Kerry Whelan for ransom. He rang up Bernie and found out that every second Wednesday, Bernie would go to Adelaide for his work. And on the very next Wednesday that Bernie was away in Adelaide, Bruce Burrell turned up at their property unannounced at Courageon. Undoubtedly, his plan was to abduct and murder her that day. But her son, 14-year-old son, was homesick from school and a nanny was also at the property. So he had to change his plan. Somehow, he convinced her to meet him at Parramatta about three weeks later and he also convinced her not to tell anybody about this meeting in Parramatta. So on that day in May 1997, Kerry drove to Parramatta, parked in the underground car park and as I mentioned, she can be seen walking out of the car park towards Phillip Street, Parramatta. Bernie was due to meet Kerry that afternoon so he immediately knew that she was missing that afternoon and by the evening the police had already been informed. The next day, Bernie and the rest of his family and a whole lot of very close friends and some police were at his home when the nanny, who was also a very close family friend, went and got the mail. And in the mail was a ransom note demanding $1.25 million for the safe return of Kerry. Now, you can imagine that the police went into overdrive at that stage and set up this huge task force to manage this kidnapping. At first, it was kept secret from the media. There was no publicity about it. But the nanny remembered this strange visit about three weeks earlier of this man whom Kerry seemed not to like and whom Kerry had said some strange things about after he'd left. The nanny was shown some photograph albums and she went through the family photograph albums and found a photograph and she said, that's the man, and Bernie identified him as Bruce Burrell. It was at that stage that the officer in charge of the investigation first found out that Bruce Burrell, two years earlier, had been the only suspect in the disappearance of Dorothy Davis. So immediately, Bruce Burrell became the principal suspect for both these murders. Now, the police went and retrieved all of the video cameras from the Park Royal Hotel at Parramatta. They, some, some police looked at these videos and they, they couldn't see anything of any consequence apart from Kerry walking up the ramp. But then the officer in charge, Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Bray, decided to have another look at these videos. And what he saw was there was a camera on the outside of the hotel that was pointed in towards a glass door of a nightclub of the hotel. And on the particular day in question, the nightclub was in darkness. Outside was an overcast day. So that glass door operated like a mirror to show what was happening on the outside in the street. And what it showed is that 45 seconds after Kerry Whelan walked up that ramp out of the car park, this two-door, two-tone, four-wheel drive Pajero pulled out from a parking spot right next to 
where the ramp came up to the street. Now the police then embarked upon this huge project to try and locate every single owner of that particular model of Pajero in New South Wales to see if they could, they could identify who it was. But they also conducted covert surveillance in Bungonia on Bruce Burrell. Now in a place like Bungonia, it is impossible for a group of police to conduct covert surveillance without the whole community knowing there are police around. What everybody thought was that the police were looking for a marijuana plantation, but it was not that. They were keeping a, an eye out for Bruce Burrell. And what they found was that Bruce Burrell was driving around, you guessed it, a two-tone, two-door Pajero of that exact model. Not only that, but there were features about this Pajero that had been seen in the mirror image of the nightclub door that exactly matched Bruce Burrell's vehicle. Like it had no roof rack, it had a running board and it had wiper marks in dust on the back windscreen. And his Pajero exactly matched it. Surprisingly, he had no Pajero registered to his name. What they found out was that this was one of a number of cars that Bruce Burrell had decided he would like to have and his practice was he would go to a car yard and ask to go on a test drive with an employee of the car yard. He'd drive up to a shopping centre and say, oh, I've, just, I've got a package waiting for me in the such, such and such a shop. Could you please go in and um, pick it up for me? Sure, sure. The, you know, the employee would go into the shop, come out, no car. Now, about three weeks after the disappearance of Kerry Whelan, the police conducted a raid and a search of Hillydale. And it was at this stage that the media were first notified about what all this was about. So not only was there a huge number of police at Hillydale, at Bungonia, but there was also a huge contingent of media camped at the front gate of the Hillydale property. And what the police found at Hillydale was amazing. Firstly, they did not find any of the bodies, either of the bodies. They went down as many mine shafts as they could safely do. Some of them they had to lower cameras down because they were in the process of collapsing. But they didn't find the bodies. But what they did find inside the homestead was two dot point notes in Bruce Burrell's handwriting that he'd left in a pile of papers on his desk that the police went through. One of the dot point notes was an early version of the kidnapping plan and one of the dot point notes was an early version of the ransom note. They also found a typewriter, an electric typewriter of the kind that had been used to type the ransom note. They also found in his handwriting a car cleaning schedule which amongst other things said front passenger side, half an hour. Why would you clean the front passenger side of a car for half an hour? They found another stolen car, a Jaguar, and in the Jaguar they found a street directory 
where the location of the Park Royal Hotel at Parramatta had been highlighted in pink highlighting and the address of the hotel written in the highlighter in the margin. And they found a whole lot of other evidence as well, including an almost empty bottle of chloroform. Now you probably know what chloroform is. It used to be used 100 years ago as an anaesthetic agent. So in the meantime, the media were publicising information about this investigation and the search, and Bruce Burrell very quickly became the most hated man in Australia. He was under extreme pressure. He then made a dreadful mistake. He went to one of his neighbours without being followed by the police and asked to borrow his car because he no longer had a car, went into Goulburn, which was the nearest large town, went to a public phone box where he thought a call couldn't be traced and made a call to the reception number of Crown Equipment. And he gave the receptionist a code which had been in the ransom note which only the kidnapper would have known and said, tell Bernie that he must get the police off if he wants to ever see Kerry alive again. Now, of course, the police were immediately informed about this call and a few days later, Bruce Burrell was interviewed by the police and he was asked about, you know, were you in the phone box at this particular time in Goulburn, in the main street? Now, he thought that he hadn't been followed, but he wasn't absolutely sure. And he knew that if he had been followed and he told a lie about being in that phone box, that lie could implicate him. And he thought there's no way they can trace who's made a call from a public phone box. So he said to the police, yes, I was in the public phone box at that time and I was making a call to my solicitor to make an appointment to see him. His solicitor's office was around the corner. Now, he was wrong about the public phone box. We were able to get conclusive evidence that a call had been made at that specific time from that phone box to the reception area of Crown Equipment at Smithfield. So that was also very strong evidence against him. Now, um, because of time constraints, I can't go into all of the intricacies of how this matter came to trial, but it was a tortuous process. Uh, initially, when it went to trial, I wasn't able to do the matter because I was doing another matter. Another prosecutor had it. There was some evidence that was excluded and the DPP made a decision not to pursue the murder charge for the death of Kerry Whelan. The matter then went to a coronial hearing where a little bit more evidence was found. It then came back to the DPP office, came back to me. The DPP reinstituted the charge of murder in relation to Kerry Wheeler and started the process of a murder charge against Bruce Burrell for the death of Dorothy Davis. So here we were with two murder charges against the one person and I tried to have both cases heard together and I used, amongst other things, those statistics that I gave you at the beginning about 
you know, what an amazing coincidence it is that the only two women in that category who were still missing after all that time, the only thing they had in common was Bruce Burrell. But the trial judge ruled that that was not sufficient to justify having the trials together, so we had to make a decision which trial are we going to run with first, and we decided to run with the Kerry Will and murder because there was more evidence there. So we ran a very lengthy trial with an enormous amount of evidence, some of which I've told you about, but there was a lot of other evidence that's detailed in the book. Um, there were rulings allowing some of the evidence, other rulings not allowing some of the evidence. For instance, the chloroform got excluded. The car cleaning schedule got excluded. But the dot point notes were included in the evidence and I explain in the book why those decisions were made by the trial judge. But at the end of a lengthy trial, the jury retired to consider their verdict and they deliberated for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they announced that they were unable to agree. Now, at that time, jury verdicts had to be unanimous. So the judge discharged the jury without verdict and within 24 hours, 11 of the 12 jurors had gone to the media complaining that one of their numbers had refused to discuss the case properly with them during the course of the trial, had refused to engage in deliberations in those 10 days in the jury room and had been acting irrationally. So the New South Wales government then went ahead and passed the legislation to allow for majority verdicts of 11 to 1. Either way, for guilty or not guilty. Now, a lot of people think majority of 7 to 5. No, it's got to be 11 to 1. Either way. We ran a second trial against Bruce Burrell for the murder of Kerry Whelan and he was eventually convicted in a unanimous decision by the jury, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. In the meantime, uh, Bruce, as I mentioned, had been charged with the murder of Dorothy Davis. That was a different sort of a case. They were both circumstantial cases, but in the case of the Dorothy Davis murder, the evidence from Ken Hulse, the carpenter, was absolutely critical to the prosecution case because that was the only evidence of where Dorothy was intending to go when she left her home. And we were able to prove that the only person who matched the description that she'd given the carpenter was Bruce Burrell's wife, Dallas. There was nobody else that she knew well in that area. She'd pointed directly at the house where the Burrells lived and she disappeared without trace. Now, uh, eventually we proceeded with a trial against Bruce Burrell for the murder of Dorothy Davis. That was in 2005? No, seven. And he was convicted of that, again by a unanimous verdict, even though majority verdicts were permissible at that time. He was sentenced to 28 years in relation to the Dorothy Davis murder, but of course it was academic because 
He had already been sentenced to life, and in New South Wales, life means life. At the end of the day, there were still some enduring mysteries about this case, and I address those mysteries in the book. They include things like this. What was it that Bruce Burrell said to Kerry Whelan when he went and visited her at Currajong three weeks before her disappearance that led her to agree to meet him when she didn't like him at Parramatta? And she obviously got into his car with him and she hadn't told anybody about the meeting. How did he do that? What happened to the bodies? And finally, I mentioned to you that this book is about the disappearance of two women and a man. About a year prior to the disappearance of Dorothy Davis, Bruce Burrell had approached one of his neighbours, a man by the name of Charlie Spears and his wife because he wanted to buy their home. Their home had a lovely view of the ocean and it had a big yard where Bruce Burrell thought he could run his dogs. And he was very keen to buy this house and Charlie Spears' wife was willing to sell but Charlie, who was in his 70s and who was very infirm, he could barely walk, he was really restricted to his home, didn't want to sell his home because he wanted to live out whatever years he still had left in this lovely home in the southeastern suburbs. A few weeks later, Charlie Spears' wife went to play bingo at the local club, leaving Charlie at home, sitting in the lounge room on the chair. She got home about two or three hours later and there was no sign of Charlie. There, there was some furniture in the lounge room that was upturned his slippers were just strewn on the floor of their lounge room. No sign of Charlie. The police were informed. They made investigations. And they assumed Charlie must have somehow, by some miracle, walked to some nearby rock cliffs and thrown himself off the cliffs into the water because, and his body had been washed out to sea. That was the only conclusion they could come to. Now... After Bruce Burrell's convictions for both murders, the police made every attempt that they could to try and convince him to disclose the whereabouts of the bodies of Dorothy Davis and Kerry Whelan, and he refused. In fact, he never acknowledged his guilt. And I think the reason why Bruce, one of the reasons why Bruce Burrell may well have refused to disclose the whereabouts of the bodies of the two women is that there may well have been a third body there. That's one of the reasons. There are other reasons too that I explain in, in the book. So I think that that's probably all I need to tell you about this book. I, I wrote it for non-lawyers. I wrote it for people like you. I wrote it hopefully in, in a way which can be understood by people who have never attended a criminal trial because the reality is that hardly anybody has the time available to sit through the three months of a complex criminal trial like these were. I also wrote it because I think that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that uh, circumstantial evidence is inherently weaker than direct evidence, and these cases demonstrate that's not the case. 
And I also wrote it because a lot of non-lawyers are under the misapprehension that you can't have a murder trial without a body. Well, you can. You still have to prove death, but you can prove death particularly with an adult who has extensive connections in society by other means. So... At this okay, point, so I'm happy to answer yeah, questions. Yeah, we've got time for a couple of questions. Um, we are recording this session, so if you could please speak clearly and loudly into the microphone as I hand it to you, it would be great. We'll start over here. Thank you very much. Who was the DPP that you referred to? The DPP was Nicholas Cowdery. Nicholas Cowdery, I thought it probably was, yeah. Who um, I hold in the highest regard. He was a fabulous DPP. I just wondered about the instances of the number of bodies that have not been discovered over the years. Obviously, there's three in this particular case or cases. It's scary, isn't it? Uh, I mean, 61 people were still missing, bodies not found, six years later. Um, it, it's a scary thought. Um, some of them are hitchhikers which is very dangerous. Uh, some of them are people who have gone off and probably committed suicide somewhere where their bodies can't be found. Some of them have gone off and started lives elsewhere. Maybe they'll resurface at some stage in the future. Um, some of them, like rock fishermen, have been swept out to sea um, or you know, people on boats that have overturned or things like that. But it is a scary number, 61 still missing after six years. Yeah, and, and, and that's just from that three-year period. So, yeah, it's a scary figure. Um, where is Mr Burrell now? Uh, Mr Burrell is, is in the Court of Appeal in the sky. <laughs> Uh, he passed away about uh, five years ago from liver cancer when he was in custody and, uh, yeah, to his dying day, refused to acknowledge his responsibility for these deaths. Yeah, same with Ivan Milat. And I, I explain in the book that there are some really understandable reasons why these people who have overwhelming cases of their responsibility for serious crimes have an incentive to still deny their responsibility. Yeah. But Ivan Malat's a classic example. Um, did you determine that um, Burrell had a personality disorder or, or was he just a vindictive person bent on revenge? In my view, he had serious narcissistic tendencies and that was seen in a number of different ways. Firstly, it made him immune to the suffering of not just his victims but his victims' families. I mean, he knew Carrie Whelan's children, he knew her husband, he knew Dorothy Davis really, really well, knew Dorothy's children and grandchildren and yet he had no compunction at all about murdering those two women. Um, but it also gave him a sense of entitlement. The universe owes me a living and the sense of how unfair it was that he was living in abject poverty 
whereas somebody like Bernie Whelan was living in times of plenty and he had this sense of unfairness and a sense of an entitlement to correct what was so grossly unfair. And he also had no conception of the fact that he was leaving the most obvious um, traces of evidence for the police to later find, particularly with Kerry Whelan. I mean, he was lucky with Dorothy Davis that, that she didn't say, I'm going to visit my friend Dallas Burrell. Um, but even so, um, you know, he took terrible risks. But he'd got away with certainly her murder and prob- you know, possibly the murder of Charlie Spears. Who know? We don't know. There was never enough evidence to charge him for that. Um, but he got away with those with that or those murders, so maybe that gave him a false sense of security. Thank you. I just, funnily enough, finished Kidnap yesterday, <laughs> which was amazing. Thank you. That was a really good book. That's also about a serious narcissist. Exactly. And I wrote, I wrote, at the end you wrote about narcissists and what they were. Um, but... Did Kerry, was Kerry Whelan killed before the note was written? I mean, with Graham Thorne, it was um, he killed him and then he thought, oh, my God, I can't get any money because he's dead. What happened there? Bruce Burrell could never have allowed Kerry Whelan to return to her family because she knew him. So the plan always involved her death. So my hypothesis is that she died within a very short time of him converting what was a voluntary lift into a forced abduction. And I explain in the book why I think I know exactly where he was going to do that and exactly how he was going to do it. But uh, I, I suspect that within the hour of her getting into that vehicle, she was already dead. He was never going to return her to her family. Sorry, I think that you've switched it off. A family of his own, like a wife and kids? Or... Well, he had a, a wife, Dallas. Uh, to, it was a second marriage for both of them. Um, he had this ability to ingratiate himself, particularly with older women, and convince them to lend him money. Mm-hmm. And... Dallas was initially very taken with him, but she learned after they married very quickly that he was very morose, quarrelsome, lazy, and he was constantly getting money from her. Uh, he was a hopeless case, and they divorced. But so far as I know, he didn't have any children, but he had um, siblings and, and a, a father whom I feel very sorry for because he was involved in very peripherally in some of the evidence that we had to call about the Kerry Whelan disappearance. He'd stayed at his father's home before that visit that he made to um, Currajong and he told his father a lie about where he was going. So he had to call his father and I felt very sorry for his father having to give evidence for the Crown in the trial. We have time for one more question. Thank you.
I just want to ask if those murders were to occur today, would would uh, the forensics be any different, better? I mean, presumably with mobile phone, uh, people being able to trace, yeah. Uh, good question. Actually, in relation to the Dorothy Davis disappearance, we had extensive mobile phone evidence already. That was from 1995. And uh, by 1997, the police already had uh, access to DNA technology. So they did an extensive search for any trace of uh, Kerry Whelan's DNA in the Pajero and found none. He spent half an hour cleaning the car to make sure that it, there were no fingerprints or DNA there. Uh, it was also done on uh, his homestead at Hillydale. Nothing found. Uh, it's... Look, there, there's been a lot of advances made in DNA technology and mobile phone technology since then. I mean, we're talking about um, nearly 30 years, so, yeah, it's a lot more advanced today. But we did have the technology in its infancy at that time. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um... We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.